It's August 2nd, 2021. This is Rook. Well, there is no shortage of Iranians who've overcome adversity to find great success in the diaspora. And in some cases, those folks have built their story with hard work, determination, and independence. Those who are khud as we may say in Persian. Well, today's feature guest falls into that category, an Iranian-British CEO and founder of Babylon Health who fled Iran in his teens with little in his pockets but ambition and intellect. Ali Parsa got a PhD in engineering physics, became a successful investment banker, and then a corporate leader in the health space, from refugee to billionaire. Ali Parsa joins us today from London. This is Conversations From, To, and About the Iranian Diaspora. I'm Gian Gamashi. This is Rook. Hi there, welcome to episode 132 of Rook. Hope you're keeping well wherever you are tuning in from around the world. Salam, Dustan Aziz. Hello to you from Toronto, Canada. Kian is back. I wish I could say I'm happy to be back. Kian, it's so good to have you back. You know, I didn't realize how much I'd miss you. But when you abandon the show and leave me with these two, I am suddenly, Sinking suddenly recording the show and looking at Reza. And Shaya is my... Uh, Okay. <laughs> my family is visiting from Winnipeg. My sister and uh, Kiana, uh, my sister's kid, and and my uh, and my sister's partner. They're visiting from uh, from Winnipeg, and um, uh, so I, there was a big dinner last night. And my mom and my sister they, they confronted me. No way. They were like, um, you know, my mother was like, um, I think um, no, that's Shaya. Wait, <laughs> how do I do my mother's impression? Anyway, they were saying, uh, uh, you know, why, why do you treat Reza so badly? <laughs> Right. Like, you're, I mean, like you're defending Reza? What? They say, oh, yeah, you're always so mean to Reza. What? I'm like, yeah, come on, hang on a second. Let me give you the context. They were like, they were like, oh, you're nice to Shia. And, you know, you and Keon have your banter, but this poor Reza. I'm like, you guys don't understand the way that Reza carries on in the, in the office. I mean, I'm doing everyone a favor by knocking him down a peg or two. Strutting around with his, you know, loafers yeah. and his. Uh, That's crazy. I mean, it makes me happy, though. It's so heartwarming to have fans amongst the Gomeshi family. <laughs> let, me, yeah. let me explain so to the audience. Good. Let me explain to the audience that Reza is someone who walks around 24-7 every month of the year, every season, with sunglasses on the top of his head. That's the person He's he is. Cool dude. The night I met him, we, we met at a, it was in a Persian event. It was like a gala event that we met at. Yeah. And a, you know, people are dressed in suits and say, Reza has shades Stop. on the top of his head. Not He's not wearing the shades, on the top of his head, you know? <laughs> Like, so like he's Spielberg shooting Jaws or something. <laughs> I did. And I was wearing a suit, actually. And they're $12 sunglasses. They're not even like, it's, it's not a fat. Wait, a, what is it? We 
weirdest. Sunglasses. It's not wrong. I, they're cheap sunglasses. Wait, why? Break them. It's because uh, I don't do my hair every day. <laughs> I have bad <laughs> hair days pretty much every other day. It's kind of, it works like, it's like a whole top bandana. Yeah, it holds genius. my hair down. It's not that, ge- it's not genius. <laughs> Trust me. <laughs> well, it's not people, people, I mean, I don't know who, somehow he gets dates and he's like, yeah. I don't know who's attracted to this. Like, <laughs> the guy with the $12 sunglasses stuck in his head 24 7. He has a target market. <laughs> he really Very does. Slim. He really does. It's just specific, but it works. People think you've been out all day, out and about. Busy guy. See, listen, look how excited we are. The Keon's back. We're all like <laughs> joking around. It's been morbid around here. I should listen you know? back. What happened? Shia was lying it? on the ground. It's depressed. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, who did the letters of the week? Uh, Harry Super P. Oh, that's sweet. Oh, so you didn't listen. Well, I listened. I thought it was, you'd I come li- back and listen <laughs> at least. I listen, I was in paradise. Typical Keon. Would you right. listen? Don't when get you're me started, all right? How, how, how long is your birthday? It's been it's a month you've been away right. for your birthday. It's still going on for as long as possible. Just squeeze <laughs> the it. The only person that has a birthday all year long. Oh, Aren't most itch. girls like that, though? They try to squeeze it for like a month. I don't know about that, Keon. I think you have <laughs> some ideas of what most girls are like. We are coming to you on rookmedia.com. It's there that you can link to all of our platforms, rookmedia.com. It's the hub. It's the baby of Ponta, the artist who creates uh, our website and does some really cool graphics on there. Check it out, rookmedia.com. It's where you can become a patron of this program. You press the button that says support us. We appreciate that support. We crowdsource to keep this going. We're on an ongoing mission to build a new audiovisual encyclopedia of Iranian diaspora identity and our platform. Platforms are Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, and Castbox. And if you'd like to see visuals with Rook and see us on social media, find us on Instagram or YouTube right now, Rook Media. And if you like your Rook descriptions and bulletins in English and Farsi, check us out on Telegram. You know, Keon, um, we have, first of all, I should mention Ali Parsa, Dr. Ali oh. Parsa, coming up in just a little bit. I'm so looking forward to talking to him. I, he's just been named one of the 200 richest people in the UK, mm-hmm. which in the country of lords and you know monarchies and all of that is saying something. Uh, he's a, obviously he's a billionaire and and mm-hmm. or twice over or whatever it is, but his story is really fascinating. And one of the things about his story that I have to ask him about, he's so he comes you know as a, alone as a 16 year old. He uh, I guess escapes through Pakistan or something. We'll get to that mm-hmm. uh, when I talk to him, but. Um, he, he arrives in England and he decides that uh, going to high school would not be efficient enough. Like he wants to be more productive than that. So he figures, I'll teach myself wow. the O and A levels, which is what they were in England at right. the time, to go to university rather than go to high school like a, I mean, who thinks that way? That's, that's, the, that's what leads this guy. I mean, it's brilliant that A, I mean, he's able to do that and teach himself, but mm-hmm. it's also brilliant that he was thinking that way at right. the age of, as a teenager. So it was just know? within him to become yes. successful. Yes, think of a, a 16 year old teaching themselves O and A levels, and imagine. then think of yourself, Keon. <laughs> I was gonna say Reza, but okay, <laughs> right. that right. works too. Well, Reza sure. was deciding which glasses to put on his head. <laughs> oh man, hey listen. <laughs> It took you him guys, years. You guys better <laughs> easy, take it easy on me. Gomeshi family is going to get pissed <laughs> off. So uh, d- uh, Ali Parsa joining mm-hmm. us from London. It's an honor, actually, to have him on the on the show. Very much looking yeah. forward to talking to him. Uh, Keon, we really did miss you last week uh, uh, on our shows. We also had, I should mention, um, I don't know if it's a coincidence or not, 
it was our best week ever. Um, <laughs> I know. No, it, it literally was. Like I was like, oh, I, oh, I miss Keon. I was like, the no, vibe wasn't good. Then I got the numbers. We literally had the best week ever of Rook. Two thousand you know. followers like on Instagram. Like a bad luck charm. I mean, our our Apple, Spotify, thousands and thousands. Should I just of, leave? I mean, people were couldn't get enough of the pod. They were like, something's different. This thing is. I this thing's magic. This is the. All right, I'm walking out right now. The door. I'll lock myself out. No, honestly, I, I really Strangest felt thing. the absence of you. I really missed oh, okay. you. But then I did look at the numbers. <laughs> when like, Listen, Keon, maybe it's best if you just don't come back. <laughs> We need a we need one of those uh, real time uh, <laughs> graphs that shows the dips when someone's talking. You know, like, I'm surprised that you guys when Shia talks, it spikes up. You know, and all informative stuff. Surprised you guys didn't arrange a meeting with me. Like, listen, Keon, you're great, but uh. but let us show you some charts from last week. <laughs> it's all in the numbers. No, I mean, I, I think it. Listen, we had a a, a really moving mm. and I hope helpful uh, episode mm-hmm. on Khuzestan. Yeah. We had Dr. Sheila Nazar. On. We had a number of other things before that. We had um, Kayvon uh, and, and Bessal Balur. And so, uh, you know, it's been, it, the show keeps growing, but mm-hmm. it was a funny thing to look at. <laughs> when I got the stats and I was like, oh, <laughs> I could downsize. And <laughs> the show gets better. Ah. <laughs> uh. Hey, a big thank you and shout out to Ed Dolat Abadi. Ed Dolat Abadi, who you can find at torontorealestatemarket.ca. torontorealestatemarket.ca for helping make this episode of Rook possible. Ed is a real estate broker, an agent who works at uh, works with uh, Royal LePage Signature Brokerage. Um, one of the top in his field, but also puts a real emphasis on caring about the community and giving back. Ed was born and raised in Tehran came to Canada about 24 years ago. Uh, He has over 20 years of experience in management, sales, marketing, combined with the education and passion to help people, uh, which this has made him one of the most successful realtors in the province of Ontario. If you are looking for real estate in the greater Toronto area, Ed Dolat Abadi is your guy. He cares deeply about the Persian community as well and supports endeavors like Rook. Thank you to Ed Dolat Abadi. And here's the URL, Toronto Real Estate Market. One more, Toronto Real Estate Market dot CA. You were telling me Dolat Abadi. Dolat is the state, right? Yes. And, and Abad is... It's like county, like Orange County. You can call it Portugal Abad. That's true. Orange County is Portugal Abad. So would Dolat Abad or Dolat Abadi would be state county? Yes. So interesting. It doesn't translate into English well. I mean, nobody's called... Do we have that? I've never Philip State County? No. But that's interesting. Dolat Abadi. And sometimes it's just Abadi. Yes. And then sometimes it's Dolati. Yes, and that's then, right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And sometimes it's Abadan, you know, which is uh, like several Abadi mm. is Abadan. Oh, and it's also that. the name Wait, of Wait, I thought Abadi was the plural. Abadan is the plural? Of Abadan is the plural of Abadi. Ab- mm. Oh, that's yeah. interesting. Yes. Is that in general? Like is Gomeshi... Um, Gomeshan, Gomeshan <laughs> would be the, yeah, 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 the yeah. plural. <laughs> yeah. That's so interesting. Uh, 
Yes, take it easy. <laughs> Stick to English there, kid. Still in he the Barbados. Comercio. <laughs> Remember the time that Keon read her own name wrong? It was oh, like, yeah, Kayan. And Kayan. It's like Keon. And By the way, how was it there, the Barbados? It was amazing, but you know what uh, really canceled it out? What's that? You know, like my version of Hell on Earth is Pearson uh, Airport, the Toronto during, Airport during the pandemic. Mm. It is the most miserable place on well, earth. Well, people, first of all, you have a an amazing tan. I changed races, can't you see? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> come to work Lucht so that we can see her her tan. I mean, you're very, uh, you're not. You're, I'm wearing a gym you're outfit. Revealing yeah. yourself. Yeah, but but so, uh, what's the situation in Barbados? Do you wear a mask everywhere, or what's? I mean, you wear a mask indoors, mm. but it's kind of you know, like outdoors, you don't wear a mask really. Nah. Nobody, yeah, so were they so stringent about that in, in well, the Caribbean? Well, listen, there was like, I, th I think I did about like three different tests before right. I even arrived there. So right. it's, and you know, everybody's vaccinated there. So it's pretty safe. They everybody's vaccinated there? Yeah, you have to be vaccinated to get there. Oh, to get into the country. To get into the country. Oh, so that's it's right. not like the that's states right. where no, you're, you not know, at all. No, no, no. So it's or, quite uh, safe. Yeah, okay. um, incredible. It's you know, beautiful country, beautiful people. But like I said, the airport. Uh, you you've been there, Gian. Yeah, you I know have. how I just came back from the states is. a couple of weeks ago. Yeah, it's yeah. Li you mean the lineups it's and all that. Just screaming children, yeah. and Ooh. so I, I forget how wonderful the trip was. You see, you see, <laughs> a rich people problem. That's She's entitled entitlement. About yeah. Four hours of waiting yeah. at the airport I'm, lineup. I'm educating you all how. Reza hasn't been able to eat all week. He doesn't have any money, and you. Starving yeah. I'm, I'm informing the public of how you know what it's like to travel during a. I pandemic. wanted to give a big shout out as well to Kati Kavandi, Kati Kavandi Immigration Services Inc. Kavandi.ca, Kavandi.ca is where you find her. You know, um, I was thinking about Kati, and I actually asked her about this. I called her due to the recent news in Iran. Uh, w with respect, I mean, there's lots of news in Iran, but you guys have heard about this: the possibility of restricting some internet or some internet yes, users. Yes, yes, um, So to check this out, apparently the word immigration wow. is the most used word in Google searches. In Iran. In Iran right Whoa. now. Uh, and like immigration demands have skyrocketed in the last few days. I mean, if that if you need a a testament to the vibe of a country or what's happening there, when some, you know, when everyone's Googling immigration. Uh, so anyway, I mean, I'm thinking about Cassie. If you want to find the right immigration consultant, and you don't want a consultant who might, you know, take advantage of this huge amount of applicants for beneficial purposes, uh, giving misleading information, or whatever. If you're looking for an immigration consultant, search if they are official members of the ICCRC. Look up their reviews. Kati Kavandi Immigration Services Inc. is well known for uh, working honestly with their clients, very responsive, handling and chaperoning successful applications all the way through the process. Just check out their reviews on Google. Kati Kavandi is the name, Kati Kavandi Immigration Services. The Instagram page is kati.kavandi.immigration or go to kavandi.ca. Obviously, we'll put those links in uh, the description of whatever platform you're listening to us on right now. Um, we've been putting up these Rook funnies mm. on our Instagram <laughs> site. Uh, and it's always comical to me that, you know, 
people find this stuff interesting. So you remember the story about Mosh Dabar in the garage? Yeah, that's right. 16,000 downloads. <laughs> Come on. Of just, mo- just Mosh Dabar in the garage. Mush and then yesterday we put up Isa and Musa. Yeah, you know, that's right. The, 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 the dynamic duo. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus and Moses, Isa and Musa. Yeah. And uh, so that one's now rocketing up the charts as well. Wow. Uh, if you want to check out our Rook Funnies, they're on our website at rookmedia.com and uh, on Instagram as well. All right, well, good to have you back, Keon. Uh, we have some letters. Yes. yes, we do. Yeah. What are we? Uh, I'm which? catching up over the last few episodes. Mm-hmm. Just quite a pile of yes. really beautiful letters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What are we gonna? Uh, what's we, the focus today? We have today? some on Dr. Sheila Nazarian. We have some on Behzad Balur and uh, Kayvon Zand. As well. All right, we'll get to the letters. Uh, did you want to say something, Shaya? Uh, no, welcome back. Oh, okay. <laughs> thank right. you, Shaijun. Where's uh, my welcome back, Reza? Welcome back, oh, thank you. That's what I wanted. The tension is palpable. <laughs> <laughs> Just a few hours into Keon's return. <laughs> uh, all right. The fabulous Keon, Captain Reza, Groovy Shia. We'll uh, see you on the other side of uh, the interview for the letters of the week. Let's get to our feature guest. You know, when we talk about successful people in our Iranian diaspora, uh, I'm not sure there's a way to overstate the success of our feature guest today. In fact, he's been listed in the Times in the UK as one of the 100 people to watch in Britain. Dr. Ali Parsaw is a British-Iranian healthcare entrepreneur, a former investment banker, who says he has dedicated his life to putting an accessible and affordable health service in the hands of every person on earth. He is the founder and CEO of the digital healthcare company Babylon Health and the co-founder and former CEO of Circle Health, Ali was born in Rasht and left Iran at the age of 16 in the aftermath of the Iranian Revolution, looking for a new beginning as a teenager. After teaching himself O and A levels, he attended the University of London, where he studied civil and environmental engineering. Then he continued at UCL, earning a PhD in engineering physics, and then had a successful career in investment banking. He is known as an entrepreneur who's pushing the boundaries of artificial intelligence, and he's become an award winner in various fields, including the healthcare space, and has had resounding material success. Most recently, the Health Service Journal recognized Ali as one of the 50 most influential people in UK healthcare. And in May, Ali was given a place on the Sunday Times Rich List as one of the most wealthy people in the UK. And right now, Dr. Ali Parsa joins me from London today. Hello, sir. Hi, Jian. Thank you so much for your extremely kind introduction and for having me. Hasan Awashid. I mean, that is, is quite, it's quite a list of accomplishments. I think you could just quit now if you want to at this point. Um, you know how it is. I, I, when people write, write about people, it's usually exaggerated in one direction or another. Nothing w- is ever as good or as bad. That is true, but I don't think we can deny the trajectory of things you've done. First of all, let me get this straight. When you launched a healthcare app in 2014 that enables remote consultations, did someone tip you off that there's going to be a global pandemic within a decade that would make your your product near essential? Uh, They did not, but it was obvious that uh, the trend uh, of things and the way they were going, and it was also obvious that healthcare is not being delivered in the way that it should be delivered. Uh, the pandemic was just something that happened. And actually, it didn't affect our business uh, in the way that you imagine, because uh, our business didn't increase because of the pandemic. Our work uh, 
uh, increased because of the, uh, if you want, the general trend towards digitization of healthcare on one hand and towards a move to value-based care as opposed to fee-for-service care on the other hand. It's interesting because, yes, you're right. I mean, it's it would have been my... Um, intuition or my my expectation that your that th- this would have been a boon to your business. I mean, one of the things I thought of is the digital first strategy and and business would have been important in its function for efficiency. Like if you told me about this in 2014, I would have gone, okay, this is a a way of avoiding having to actually go to a clinic in this fast paced world. Um, but now it takes on a whole other relevance as a a measure of safety for patients and doctors who want and can do this remotely. Was was that part of the plan from the start? Yes, and I think safety is in, it's 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 a very important part of this because uh, uh, if you can imagine, right? Imagine being ill. Imagine having a child who is ill, uh, who's got a temperature, who's feeling miserable, and then you have to drag them out of their bed. Uh, put them on either public transport or if you're rich enough, uh, I know in Canada most people have cars, but that is not true in most of the world. Uh, and then you have to get them to a doctor's surgery. You have to wait for a long time, one of usually most infected places on earth. And then and then until that child can see a doctor for a short period of time. I mean, just In today's day and age, it's just a really archaic way to go see a doctor. Uh, when you are feeling at almost your worst. Uh, so so it didn't make sense from a convenience point of view, from a safety of the person point of view, but also the system doesn't make sense from a basic health point of view. If you look at your car, Jean, it used to break down often. Like 20 years ago, I used to drive my car, it broke down. I took it to a mechanic, they fixed it, I drove it, it broke down again. Right. Today, my car just doesn't break down because we buried so many sensors in it that it pre-warns you when something's going wrong. We do it with an airplane. We do it with almost every other right, asset. Right, right, right. We just don't do it with human bodies. So I think digitization of healthcare, it's not about delivering the old model of healthcare, which was sicker. Wait for somebody to get sick and then try and do your best for them. But it's actually about how do I keep you healthy? How do we try to prevent crises and emergencies by monitoring you closely enough and being able to deal with you before a small problem becomes a crisis. But how do you uh, how do you react to me saying? I mean, I don't, I don't want to sound like a luddite. You know, I I love my gadgets. You know, <laughs> I'm, a, I, yeah, I'm a Gen Xer with my gadgets, but I but I like to see my doctor in person. Sometimes, I mean, that makes it gives me comfort somehow. Does that work against your technology, or do you think nope. I'll change my attitude as I use it? No, absolutely. I mean, we have clinics uh, in the countries that we operate. We own and operate clinics where you see your our doctors physically when you need to and when you want to. Uh, and in countries where we don't operate our own clinics, we partner with clinics who uh, are already there doing a great job and you uh, can go and see them entirely at your choice. You're absolutely right. There is nothing Luddite about the way we want to choose to seek healthcare. Sometimes I like to go to a shop and buy something physically. Sometimes I like to order it and have it delivered to my home. Uh, Those personal choices really matter. The problem is when you don't have that choice 
and you always have to go see a doctor right, who often right. is not available. Right, 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 right. And and I have to say, I mean, even with this pandemic, um, not having the pleasure of the using the ba- Babylon Health app, I, I my doctor did, um, I guess, you know, we downgraded to using phone calls, you know, because nobody was going into the clinic because of COVID. And, and it did occur to me that why do I always have to go in? <laughs> because <laughs> half of the things that I was calling him about were just, you know, do, should I get another prescription for this? Or, or what should I do about this? And I mean, it, it, it's, it makes a lot of sense as you say uh as as the world digitizes that this is the way i mean i'm guessing that we're going to be walking around in a few years you're you're more of a futurist than i would ever be but with gadgets or devices that are constantly monitoring us and telling us what we need to do and that this kind of that the idea of having to pick up and go somewhere so that somebody could assess us will seem archaic right I certainly hope so. Uh, I mean, it certainly is archaic in case of um, almost any other asset that we have. I mean, can you imagine uh, on an airplane if you're traveling and you just wait for a crisis to happen and then you react? I mean, we can foresee when an engine is going wrong. We mm-hmm. can foresee when uh, so many other things are happening uh, uh, in our surrounding environment. Nobody should really be surprised by getting stage four cancer. Uh, Most cancers, just take cancer, one of the biggest killers of humanity. Most cancers are curable if we get them very early. And many are incurable when we catch them late. Uh, And and most cancers have enough signals that we could catch them early if we were monitoring. We just don't monitor. You know, I want to come back to Babylon and uh, and and uh, I mean the your app, not not the place uh, in <laughs> from the past, but I but I have to get into your story because I, as I've told you before, off the uh, outside of this interview, I find it to, you to be an inspiration in terms of what you've done. You your story is amazing because you immigrated west, uh, but in your case, you did it alone. I mean, t- tell me about. Um, being this 16-year-old Iranian kid uh, landing in London uh, in the immediate aftermath of the revolution that we had in, in Iran. Um, take me back to that time. Um, you know, anybody that immigrates, it's, it's not easy. It's a hard journey. Um, and, uh, and it's the same for all of us. Uh, I was very lucky. Uh, I was born in a a middle-class, loving, wonderful family. And leaving that family was incredibly hard uh, in the same way that it's hard for everyone. I lost my father, unfortunately, last year to COVID. And I remember that I, as I was leaving Iran, he walked with me or came with me as close to the border as he could. And and, and as he, we were leaving, I was leaving, uh, he came to hug me and the person who was going to take me away said, look, you cannot hug because people will notice uh, that you're separating. And so he says, what do you expect me to do to a son that I may never see again? And I said, just at best you could shake his hand. So he shook my hand and he said, you just stay well until I see you. And I remember at that time, we had no expectation. There was no mobile phone. Which border was that? Where were you? Uh, that was a border to go via Pakistan. Uh-huh. Uh, to to uh, uh, and so so I left that way, and within half an hour, by the way, uh, I got caught uh, as somebody who was going to go away. 
And it was fascinating that a complete stranger who knew me uh, not at all uh, said, uh, came and intervened and, and risked his own uh, uh, life to allow this young 16-year-old to pass by uh, and, and go unharmed. And, and I learned there and then, uh, and I learned that many, many times since, that it is always the people that you love most who are always looking after you, but it's also the people you do not know at all uh-huh. that are looking after you because it is in, in, in the DNA of humanity to be kind and to look after each other. That's how we survived uh, throughout uh, millennials. And uh, so it would be so wrong of me to say, oh, well, I left on my own and I survived on my own because of all my own achievements. The reality is I was helped all the way with so many countless kind, honorable other people who just pushed me along the way and helped me uh, do well. And it's nonsense to try and claim credit for what others helped you get to. That's quite beautifully said, and I want to. I'm going to ask you about the DNA of uh, of, of humanity. I wouldn't want to overstate this, but it's interesting coming from a Persian saying <laughs> saying that because I find, sadly, I say this, I find us to be very distrustful um, and to be quite cynical sometimes about humanity. Maybe it's because of what Iranians have experienced in the last few, you know few decades. Um, but do you do you really believe that much in humanity? Yes, absolutely. I mean, look, we wouldn't have been able to survive as as a species if we didn't help each other out. Uh, uh, we are a social animal. We hunt in herds and in packs. We eat together. We look after each other. I mean, you said uh, the name of my company, Babylon. The reason we chose it to call it Babylon was because all those many thousands of years ago, uh, the Babylonians had a model in which if they got ill, they stood in the middle of a square uh, that was assigned to the ill, where it was the duty of every a person who passes by to ask you what's wrong with you and if they had experienced that problem to tell you what they did to survive. Um, so I think that um, humanity and many other, uh, by the way, species are, are in the DNA are designed to be social and to be helpful to each other. And most people are. Now, it is true that in any group, there is always the odd one out. And I had my own fair share of suffering uh, from uh, from those people. But it is utterly wrong to generalize and say, because we hit a minority who do the wrong thing, that means everybody does the wrong thing. That would lead to a cynical, pessimistic, downbeat world. Mm. Uh, and I just refuse to be part of that. You know, I love your story, or I love your remembrance of the the guy in Pakistan who helped you out, who had no incentive or family ties or anything like that. Um, and I also really appreciate, uh, as I'm sure the people listening do, that you you are um, you keep uh, issuing disclaimers for us to not see you as some kind of hero. But and surely a lot of uh, people, a lot of us uh, Iranians, have immigrated. But but to come alone without your parents. 
um, as 16, I mean, a lot of 16-year-olds wouldn't have made the choice, you know, would have just sort of thought, I better hedge my bets and stay in, in, in Iran uh, with my family. Uh, you've said that it did teach you the ability to stand on your own two feet. Talk to me about that. Well, I think it's Malcolm Gladwell who has this concept of desirable difficulties. And like many other middle-class uh, teenagers or ch- uh, children. I was born in a, a very loving, very caring family, although my family was always very open and very liberal. And uh, from much earlier age, for instance, I used to spend my summers uh, on my own uh, by the Caspian Sea with uh, friends uh, in a hotel from first day of the summer to the end of the summer, I would be there. So, uh, so that a trust that the family had in its children to grow up uh, uh, as maturely as possible obviously helped. Um, but but I think that at the end of the day, we're all protected. And being taken out of that bubble and having to stand on your own feet um, and having to survive on your own, it's a very valuable lesson. Because what it teaches you, Jian, is that Frankly, most problems solve itself. Uh, frankly, uh, if you run into trouble, there are many, many others who are prepared to come and help you out. Therefore, there is really no point in doom and gloom and worrying about things too much. And also, as it, it's a great foundation for entrepreneurialism because you, we lost everything. I mean, I went through the kind of poverty I don't wish on anybody at some stages uh, of my uh, life. But you kind of learn that when I was at my poorest, I was as happy as I am today. Uh, and uh, and life kind of goes on and you find happiness in things that you have. Uh, I remember my uh, girlfriend at the time, who is my wife today, mm. and I were going through a a tough patch uh, financially together. Um, and there was a time that we had, Jian, you, you wouldn't believe it, but we had 20 pounds that we left on our library. And it was Tuesday and we were waiting for getting paid again next Monday. And uh, a friend of ours uh, who came to our house uh, had another friend and that friend actually took that 20 pounds. I mean, just just uh, stole it. So we had to survive from that Tuesday, Wednesday, whenever it was, Monday, uh, to the next Monday and whatever was left in the kitchen, the pasta and the beans and whatever. And you kind of learn, well, you laugh at it, you survive it, then on Monday you cash in your check and things happen. Mm-hmm. And then you learn that, frankly, things always pass. And frankly, whatever goes wrong, it'll fix itself out through time. And, and things can't get the as bad and when it was that bad it wasn't that bad if that makes sense but that's a perspective you can only get if you've had some ups and downs in your life that is that is uh, an amazing perspective although i'm always suspect of somebody who now has great resources saying i was just as happy when when I was living in poverty, <laughs> I mean, I, like you know, there's a. There, I think it was John Lennon. Somebody said that was at one point. John Lennon said, uh, "Everybody should be happy with what they have." And it was like, well, it's nice, to, you know. And my friend would always say, "Was well, it's nice for John Lennon to say that?" But not all of us are John Lennon, you know. I, I mean, can you really say you were as happy when you were living in poverty? You know, I had other things. I had other wealth that I don't have today. 
So, look, I'm in my 50s now, right? So I wake up in the morning, the back hurts, the shoulder hurts, the knee hurts, right? I didn't have any of these issues, right? right. Um, I need to watch what I eat, otherwise I'll put on a little bit of belly. It didn't matter what I had, I was highly sporty. <laughs> right. Things always looked right. great, right? Right, right? I mean, so, so you know, different things come to a different way. Now, on the other hand, I don't want to say for a minute that if you're poor, you have all the opportunities and all the possibilities than if you're rich. That's just nonsense, right? right, right. Money may not make you happy, but money will solve many of your unhappinesses. And you can buy your way or spend your way out of challenges, problems that you have. So um, uh, uh, it's a really good point you make, and I don't want to sound you have the option now to, uh, like Richard Branson and Jeff Bezos, to go to space that you didn't have when you were in poverty. <laughs> That's right. But then on the other hand, going to a space is not a necessity, right? <laughs> That's certainly true. How did you teach yourself O and A levels of education? I, 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 wanna, I mean, it wouldn't occur to me as a teenager to say, okay, well, you know, actually I can skip high school and teach myself these things. How did you do that as a new immigrant? Well, again, uh, look, I was 16, right? I land in UK. I'm almost 17 now, right? Uh, by the time I arrived. Um, then I had to learn English because at school I learned French. I didn't speak any words in English. So I had to learn English. That would have taken, let's say, three months. Then all levels at the time, or GCSEs now, it's a two-year period. And then A-levels is another two years. So that's four years, let's call it four and a half with learning English and then fitting into the school calendar years. When you're 16, 17, four and a half means you go to university when you're 20, 21. It seems like ages away, right? (laughs) It just seems that that's the time from uh, you need to, most people go into university when they're 18. So at the time, or 19, so at the time it felt like I had no other choice, but I had to figure out a way of cramming it in to get my results, to be able to go to university and not lose any more uh, time. <laughs> by the time I kind of figure out the year is not here or there, it doesn't really make a difference. I like how you say these things as if they're, they would be logical to anybody else. Most immigrants would cut themselves to slack at 16. They've come alone and go, it's going to take me a couple of extra years that it takes the guy down the street in Hillingbrand to get to get to university. They wouldn't necessarily think, well, I better teach myself. I mean, this is an interesting insight into your character and your personality. You... You're clearly ambitious. I mean, you've always, um, this is, I mean, it's entrepreneurial thinking to think as a teenager, hey, I can fast track this if I do it this way. I don't have to go into the lane that everybody's going into. Would it be true to say that this was in you early? Um, yeah. Look, I, I, I was lucky in many ways. One of the ways I was very lucky at was that my father used to <clears throat> work uh, outside of uh, the city I was bro- uh, being brought up. And when, when we were little, we lived in Tehran, and my father used to build bridges, roads, stuff like that. So he would come every two to three weeks to spend a week with us and then go back uh, again. And uh, and I re- uh, remember going to school, like at the age of six or something, and I was really unhappy. So he came home one day and saw me very unhappy, 
And in a moment of kind of kindness, uh, we talked to my mama, why don't you hold him back a year? And then he goes, next year, what, what changes does it make? And I remember then as a result, I was always a little bit older at school, a few months older than everybody else. And you can imagine when you're a few months older than everybody else, then you're always kind of the leader because sure. when you're six yeah. or seven, a few months make a huge difference. So I was always a captain of the football team, uh, the head of the class, uh, this and that. And and I think that that kind of gave me a different perspective maybe. But maybe that was also the result that I kind of, I remember my school teachers always uh, telling my parents that I was a little bit rebellion um, and uh, and different, uh, but but I I think every child is different in their own way, and I'm sure that now that I have my own children, I see them being different than um, others in their own ways. Uh, so I'm not sure how unique that was. One of the ways you're different, I mean, maybe this is what it means to be entrepreneurial, is that at every step of your life, you don't just follow what you're doing in a straight line. So you get your PhD in engineering physics in 1995. While you're doing that in the 90s, you co-found a media production company for which you win a Royal Award for Young Entrepreneur of the Year. I mean, how an engineering nerd becomes an award-winning uh, person in media promotion is <laughs> is is quite curious to me. What? I, I, how do you explain that diversity at that at that stage? I, I think that was uh, the result of necessity. Right? I was doing my PhD. We didn't have enough money to survive while doing a PhD. One of, one of the unknown uh, realities of studying for a long period of time, including doing a PhD, is that unless there is a mom and dad who help you through it, uh, or there is a government grant, or there is some kind of scholarship, sure. then you, how do you pay for it, right? Uh, so I had to find a job or a way of financing it. I looked at jobs, frankly, Jeanne, and uh, you know it doesn't pay that much to... Uh, waiter uh, or to work in a mcdonald's or whatever else it is so you do the math and say well actually if i did this one and this works it pays better so we created these media events that then turned into that company and it just paid better and uh, allowed us to uh, for me to do my phd i did it with then my girlfriend who as i said is now my wife for her to do her studies it worked for us now it is also true that when you do your PhD or you're doing your studying, there's quite a lot of wasted time. Uh, <laughs> when we are students, we don't remember it. Uh, but but if you put that wasted time to good use, you know you have time to do both. Well, I was going to ask you about that. Actually, I was going to ask you later about that. But they, but I mean, in, in terms of all that you've accomplished, I, I assume you're a very organized person. Have you always been very? Um, particular about making sure you get up at a certain time and managing your schedule and getting the right amount of sleep and, and just sort of um, multitasking, all of that that we would expect from someone like you? I'm glad we're doing this uh, conversation in English because my mother still doesn't speak uh, much English. Uh, but if she did hear you, she would laugh. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> because I'm, I'm not... Uh, I mean, I'm, I have all my challenges as anybody else, right? Some days I'm very organized and my, uh, s sometimes my kids think that I'm OCD in the way I clean after myself and, and, uh, and make my bed every morning. And sometimes I'm not as good as I should be. So pretty average in that front. 
you go into the financial world after the 1990s, first as, a, as an investment banker, then as a CEO, you work at all kinds of famous financial institutions, Merrill Lynch, Goldman Sachs. What was that period about for you? Presumably, you could be a successful engineer. You could have become a professor of engineering. What seduced you into the corporate world? It's a really good question. And I think it has partly it had to do this desire of that every immigrant has to kind of somehow becoming an insider. So I remember when I sold my company and I found a, a, a glimpse into the investment banking world. And remember, this is mid-90s. And investment bankers wore better suits, kind of dressed better, talked better. Right. And I just did the math. And so for every minute they spent with me, they made infinitely more money than I did building my company per hour. And I just thought, well, I mean, why is it they do that I can't do? So I've become an investment banker too. And I, I knew nothing about it. And remember, I don't have any family members at the time who were investment bankers, no friends who were there. So you're trying to read about it all the time. And I, um, I remember at the time there was a book by uh, Lewis um, called uh, Liar's Poker, I think. And, um, and I remember reading that and then having a final interview at Goldman Sachs uh, with uh, Cohen, who at the time was the head of uh, uh, commodity trading, who then eventually became uh, the president of Goldman Sachs. Uh, and he told me that, son, you better go to investment uh, banking side rather than rather than the trading side. And that's kind of how I started kind of differentiating uh, which one is which. I ended up there and it wasn't for me. I mean, it's it's important to say that. Uh, I wasn't the greatest of bankers. I mean, you did I pretty well. Did a, you did pretty well. Yeah, and I got promoted really fast, and I went from one to the other. But, but I tell you, I was never really happy as an investment banker. Not because there is anything wrong with investment banking. I'm not one of these people who say, uh, "Oh, bankers are bad," or this or that, or it's all about money, and I don't like that. It was nothing to do with any of this. It wasn't for me because. I wanted to build things. And investment banking, like management consultancy, it's all about projects. You, you do your best for a short period of time. You serve your client's project, and then you move on to the next thing. And I always found that in almost every project, I wanted to be on the client's side. And because I was entrepreneurial, entrepreneurs really liked me. And I used to serve them in whichever bank I was. Mm. And, and I always used to, like, as soon as the work was finished, go and spend time with them. We will have dinners together. And we were always plotting, how can we set up something together? And, uh, and that's, that was the source of my unhappiness. It was a great job, but it wasn't my great job. And I always tell the younger people, never look at what works well for somebody else. Find what it is that is in your nature that you will enjoy and you can be passionate about. And then you will do really well. I mean, because I really never was that passionate about banking, I did well because I got lucky and I did well and I had uh, this thing that clients liked me. But it wasn't really for me. And when I look at it now, if I started becoming an entrepreneur earlier, probably would have been better for me than kind of sticking it out. Let, let me ask you about entrepreneurship. Uh, but but first, just just one thing you said there that I thought was was quite interesting. That you didn't know anything about investment banking. You went into it. Are you someone who believes 
I mean, not to be ridiculous, you've already stated that you understand that there are class dimensions to to moving up in social status, et cetera, that, that there's impediments that people can have. There's no, we know that there isn't a equality of outset. But but are you someone who believes, we had a gentleman on recently named Farhad Kashani, who has been a long time, he's written management books and CEO, and you know, he was saying, I really think that for the most part, anyone can do anything if they work hard enough and really put invest in it they you know i i'm ready to take a minimum wage job anywhere and i I know i can work myself up to vp which he's done a few times are you someone who believes that's true i think up to a limit there is only so much any of us can cover uh in any period of time so much distance any of us can cover so really depends where you start and how far you're gonna go right so everybody talks about uh, how successful, let's just take anyone. Uh, you mentioned Jeff Bezos. Uh, uh, Jeff Bezos is also successful, Mark Zuckerberg is. Yes. But we must remember they were born in incredibly successful companies. They were born with a set of genetics that make them super smart. I mean, uh, Jeff is particularly super smart. Uh, they were uh, then got into uh, naturally into jobs that placed them in uh, uh, situations where they could take advantage, for instance, in his case, see the growth and the advance of the internet at the right time in the right place, right. and then therefore succeed, right? There is a reason why almost every com- mini computer or uh, uh, personal computer CEO or entrepreneur was born in 1955, right? Uh, Steve Jobs, Bill Gates, they were all born in 1950. And the reason for that was that by the time the personal computers were invented, they were not either too young or too old to take advantage of it, right? And and so where you are, how lucky you get, this all play a role. Imagine if I was born to a, uh, or imagine if the person you're mentioning was born to a, a illiterate family who was striving, for instance, in a villa- in a war-torn village yeah. in Afghanistan, to make ends meet. Yeah. And you, you don't have any of the opportunities we yeah. had. So therefore, your starting point would have been far behind. So when I'm interviewing people, when I'm trying to hire people in Babylon or in any of my other uh, functions, I never ask them about what they achieved. I always ask them about the story of their life because that gives me a glimpse of uh. the distance they covered. Uh-huh. as opposed to where they are right now. It's irrelevant where you're right now because that's all about where you start. Imagine you and I do a race, a 10-kilometer race. I start at the ninth kilometer. You start at the first kilometer. The fact that I finished the 10th kilometer faster than you is irrelevant. The question is how many kilometers did you cover uh-huh. while I right. did that one? Right. You know, I love, what the, I love that answer because uh, it's true that with someone like Jeff Bezos, the narrative is you know, we always see that picture of him in that little room where how Amazon started. You know, the narrative is a guy who had nothing. We starts with a little envelope. You know, suddenly becomes the the CEO of the, big, the most richest man in the world. You know, and and what you've just said in terms of laying out um, the the social and economic uh, uh, pedagogical structures of how these where these people come from makes a difference. Of course, it makes a difference. Um, and yet, at the same time, I mean, you you've probably hired people who you have a sense um, are just ready to work really hard, haven't you? Or or is that, you get that from the life story? I, 
I'm a big believer that you hire people who have covered a long distance in their lives, that, that they've done something that has been exceptional. And it doesn't have to be in the same thing. So, um, for instance, one of the best people I hired uh, has been an athlete, uh, right? Uh, and you just know. If this person kind of had to wake up at 5 a.m. Right, every morning right. as a kid uh, to swim uh, for two hours or three hours before going to school, uh, there, is, there is a DNA of that person that is all about determination, yes. about uh, succeeding. So you're looking for those traits of being exceptional, of, of giving it all. But that doesn't mean... Uh, uh, that uh, somebody else who's a lousy athlete, you shouldn't hire them because they probably are exceptional in something else. You need to find what it is that is exceptional about every person and then help them to double down on it as opposed to waste their time on something else. I don't know if you, John, you ever came across a 19th century um, essay by, by, I think, by a guy called Hartley, which was about, which was called the Animal School. Did you, did you ever come across what's that? What's it called? The Animal, what's it called? The animal School. No, and it, and no. it basically talks about this school that tried to get every animal to do great at everything. And the short of it is that, for instance, the eagle wanted to fly to the top of the tree and he said, no, you have to climb. And the duck wanted to swim and it says, no, you have to run. And as a result, every one of these animals ended up doing really badly. And, and that's what we do in our society, right? We say to everybody, you have to be great at everything. I mean, look at corporations, right? They do their 360 reviews of people. And then they say, okay, here is your point of uh, good. Uh, but now let me tell you what you have to improve on. I mean, it's like... I don't know. I love uh, watching soccer. I mean, who tells a goalkeeper you need to go and score a goal and because you can't score enough goals, you're a bad, bad football player. I mean, it's just absurd what we do to people. And then we wonder why so many people are suffering from lack of self-esteem and not doing well and having all these challenges. It's because it's not because they're bad. It's because often they are surrounded by people who are not very good. There's something else too, though, when you talk about life story. And when I said at the beginning of the interview that I find you really inspiring, this was the thing that you've talked about that I found the most inspiring. You've made the case for the importance of perseverance. And um, that's got to be part of when you understand somebody's life story, you understand whether they've, uh, how much they've persisted or persevered. Can you, can you give us an example from your own life or your career where perseverance would have made the difference between you succumbing or surmounting an obstacle to achieve the success you've had? Almost everything, John. There, there, there is no such thing in life, in my view, that you achieve by, by just getting lucky and achieving it. It's, it's very rare. And even if you do, even if you win the lottery, uh, you look at most lottery winners, they pretty soon lose everything they got, right? Because, or they go back to the same level of happiness they had before. Because if you haven't worked for it and if you haven't persevered for it, you don't even know how to keep it, right? Uh, to me, anything you do takes a long time for you to learn. And it never comes because you did it 
and got it right the first time. It comes because you just kept at it and made it better and better. And people talk about overnight success stories. Uh, we talked about Zuckerberg, right? But how he came up with uh, Facebook overnight and it was phenomenal success. And what is one of the rare examples of something happening really fast. Mm. But even then, can you imagine if you only stuck with Facebook and didn't do anything else? I mean, it would be a complete disaster today. I mean, the genius of Zuckerberg is the fact that he is constantly aware that he needs to improve and do right, better. Right. And therefore, kind of WhatsApp and Instagram and everything else that uh, Facebook is invested in and, and is developing. He's not blockbuster video. Right. right. Or or Motorola phone. You remember right. Lazaridis right. from right. Canada, right? I mean, he right. would just refuse to improve it or... Uh, in the face of things changing like so openly in front of him. And he was a true genius, uh, if you look at his life story. What was the precipitant, um, Alijan, for, for, for going into the health space? So we've established you were this engineer, the PhD, the, then the, the investment banking. I mean, the two companies that have made you famous, and the, the one, of course, that is very successful now project is Babylon Health. But the one in 2004, Circle Health, was the first private company to run a, a UK national health service hospital. What was the precipitant? Why, why did you want to go into the health space? So, uh, I often like kind of have a smile when people kind of, I read about other people when they answer that kind of questions. And often they always have some elaborate reason how uh, they ended up where they ended up with. I mean, we've now recently seen a few of our billionaires who are going to a space and there is always a story of how they always wanted to do it as a child. Uh, the, <laughs> the, the truth of the matter is, it was sheer pure coincidence, right? I was, I, I had my first daughter, um, and I uh, had two weeks of paternity leave, and I went to Goldman to my boss, and uh, said to my uh, boss at the time that look up, Scott, I'm going to quit. I'm, I'm leaving uh, because I want to be a full time dad. And uh, and he thought I was mad, but I thought that look, I really. It's late in life. I'm having a child, and I want to give it everything. And six months of Gaga Google later, I just thought this is this is just not, this is the hardest thing I've ever done. So uh, I I moved on. Uh, but, but but at that period of time, I had time to do uh, some surgery on my knee that I had to do because I used to do a lot of sports and I had a consistent problem with my knee. And uh, and and I just. Jean uh, saw some of the best private hospitals in UK in London that were doing my, uh, I was doing my knee, and I thought, surely if this is the best private hospital out there, I could do better hospitals than that. So I started building a chain of hospitals. Circle. Uh, I mean, our very first hospital, for instance, we said, well, why should a hospital look so awful? So I hired. Norman Foster to design it. Uh, the very first hospital we built won the award for the best public uh, space globally. Uh, we said, why should the food of a hospital be so rubbish? So we hired a Michelin star chef to deliver it. We said, why should they, uh, to cook it, not just to design it, but to actually work there and cook it every day. And then uh, we said, why should the service be so awful? We call it hospital. Why couldn't a hospital win the service for hospitality? So we hired uh, the team from the uh, hotel, the Five Star Hotel, who used to every year win the best hospitality awards uh, in UK. And uh, two years later, we beat them in it, and our, our hospital circle uh, won the best hospitality award for the two-year 
uh, in a row, first time a hospital ever did this and so on. So NHS gave us a hospital because we were already doing really well and they had to shut down a hospital and say, ha. they gave it to us to see whether we can make it work, which which we did. And it did very well while I was there. Unfortunately, two years after I left Circle, uh, it it kind of uh, didn't do as well and was sent back, was given back. But but uh, while we were there, it did phenomenally well. So so that's, uh, and Circle did well. I mean, today Circle is uh, the uh, largest hospital group in UK and it was just actually sold for a billion pounds to uh, Centene, the US uh, Insurance Corporation. Um, but it was pure accident. It was just, just seeing a problem that could have been done better and going to solve it. And the reason I'm saying that is so that for all those other people who are listening, you don't need to have a massive time of inspiration. We don't need to kind of think about what's the best thing we could do. Is you just need to see problems that you know you can solve, and you need to see something that you say, "Look, I could, I I could do with a better solution than this for myself." So why don't I? But that said, you could have chosen an easier. Feel. Like I grew up in England, I re- you know it was drilled into me from when I was a kid the importance of the NHS. That's a that's a sacred cow, you know. It's like don't <laughs> mess with the National Health Service. Absolutely. Not that you necessarily did, and I don't want to get into the private public debate. But how how do you uh, because you must have a way of coping at this point? How do you deal with criticism when when whether it's Circle Health or Babylon or uh, or somebody writing an article about your your taskmaster in the office, your difficulty? How how do you deal with these kind of um, um, criticisms about public and private healthcare. Do you care about that stuff? Are you a sensitive Persian like many of us, or can you let it roll off your back? What What does it do for you? No, I look. I I, I let it roll off my back more often than you think, and I don't read much about that kind of stuff a lot either. Because um, Tony Blair once said, and I think he's very right. And I actually talked to him once. I met him about this. He he doesn't even read articles about him because at the end of the day, you know that because you were in the industry. Uh, journalists need to have a story. They're storytellers, sure. and sometimes the story is about how good you are. But once everybody established how brilliant you are, then the question becomes: Well, there's no story in that anymore. So yeah. somebody needs to find the story about how bad you are. Well, the negative right? ones get more clicks. That's certainly what, <laughs> exactly. uh, what I've seen out there. And yeah, they get more clicks, yeah. and I mean I. I once, uh, there was a really unfair story about me uh, in, in one of the uh, journals, and I called a very good friend of mine who was the CEO of a major publication, so, uh, and I just said, look, you know it's rubbish. I know it's rubbish. And he said, I know, but look, it's, it, what am I going to do, right? The, if we can't pay these journalists enough anymore because all our publications are not making as much money. So we hire a whole bunch of very young people who are not that experienced and we can't pay them much so therefore we can give them a platform for them to make their name and everybody's trying to make their names and and it's true when you look at it from somebody else's point of view and you say if i was a journalist what would i do right i'm not going to kind of constantly follow what everybody else says i have to find my own little story and sometimes those stories are fair sometimes they're utterly unfair and one thing i learned and i'm and you had your fair share of it too is that is that you can't believe everything you read. Uh, and uh, most people that I know who, when I read about, I sometimes read what I can't believe is the person that I know uh, about. 
But it is what it is. You just have to accept it. And uh, it's been true since time immemorial, right? Uh, it has always been that, uh, the case that uh, I think uh, was it Lincoln that famously said, you can make some of the people happy uh, all of the time and all of the people happy some of the time, but you can never make the opposite happy of that. But yeah, yes, like, like said, oh, well, the opposite much. order. But yeah, it was, uh, yeah. Uh, but I mean, at the opposite end of the spectrum, you are trumpeted as well. Uh, as you know, I mean, there, there, if you Google your name right now, there's a number of uh, articles talking about how successful you are and, and being added to this Sunday Times rich list uh, of, uh, of the top people in the UK. I, d- what does that mean? to you how much i mean seriously uh, i mean these lists come and these lists go i've been incredibly lucky to have uh, all the money i need uh, but so what right i mean so what does that mean but what about the guy who wanted to be the insider i mean is there a little bit of satisfaction when you look at the list and there are a bunch of old English guys and you're in the midst of them or something? I mean, does that help? Um, yeah, I mean, I would I would lie to say there is not some satisfaction, although these lists are, uh, first of all, uh, they could also be a lot of trouble. Uh, like uh, the number of people who chase you for things that are just uh, irrelevant uh, to you and uh, the amount of time you have to waste uh, right, right. over like and doing things so th- so i mean everything being equal there is there is something in not being in any of these lists that are valuable uh and and it was a complete surprise to me frankly i found out about it the day it was published uh, and if i had a way about to do away with it uh, it would be good to not not have these things but you know uh, yeah i i i think it matters um I remember thinking that I wish my father was alive because mm. it's not so much about you. It's about everything else that it represents. It yeah. represents it can be done. It represents yeah. that all the things that your parents have gone through uh, mean something. Yeah. And we, we were hoping our kids will never find out. I mean, my wife and I were incredibly careful so that the kids stay hungry. Uh, and, uh, you know, you don't have money just because one minute somebody finds out and then you're in a list. Uh, you, you have it, but you build it through time bit by bit. And it's super important as you're bringing up children that they are not having this sense that, look, I just don't have to do anything. Everything's okay for me until as long as I live, if if, if things go well. Uh, so, um so I don't know. I mean, it's a long-winded answer. No, to it's question. a good answer. I, I totally get the thing about the dad, by the way. The only person I ever, uh, of the big paychecks I've, I've made in my life, the only person that I ever wa- told or wanted to tell was my late father. There's some some kind of desire for him to feel <laughs> feel good about you know uh, that. And and um, and I'm so sorry to hear about your your dad. Last was he in Iran? He was. He was unfortunately caught um, COVID. Uh, in the very first wave of the disease coming in when there was very little idea of how to deal with it. And therefore, he ended up in a hospital in Tehran and they almost did the uh, textbook of everything we know that shouldn't happen oh, now. No. Um, and uh, I mean, he was he was 93, but he was a very healthy uh, 93-year-old. Um, so... 
uh, and there is an, and I'm sure it's the same with you, Jean. There isn't a day that goes by that you don't shed a quiet tear for the fact that you no. lost your dad. Oh, I mean, yeah, these are yes. people that we are not supposed to lose. These are people yeah. that uh, we've known from the day we were born. And he was uh, uh, not just my father. He was also my best friend. Uh, he was my uh, hero in many ways. Uh, he was somebody who went to jail uh, for his belief in humanity and in social justice. Uh, when he was younger, he was somebody who spent all of his life just focusing on his good name. And I, and when he died, I mean, we had so many people on a Zoom uh, ceremony for him. If we just lost count of uh, and uh, how many people had how many good memories of them. So, so you're absolutely right. Making these people proud of what they've done was the bit that mattered most. Which I'm sure he, I mean, back to that handshake at the Pakistani border and, and you're 16 years old. I mean, I'm sure he, uh, he, he was tremendously proud of all that you've accomplished. You know, it's really interesting. He was proud before we have accomplished anything, like, because it's in the same way, I don't know if you have um, any kids, I do, in the same way that you stay very proud when they take their first step and then when they can run and then when they win their first race. It really doesn't matter uh, where they are in that journey. What matters is that the first accomplishment, if you love them, you show them their love and you show them that how much you care for their success. And he always did. He was very, very good at it. You know, I'm so grateful for the time you've given us. I've only got a, a question, one or two questions left, and I, I wanted to actually ask you about um, come back to the kid who came here as a as an Iranian refugee. I mean, it's a tale that you know we've been talking. The subtext of this interview has become about how the media, you know, sensationalizes things, and and it's funny to see the headlines about you because they're always like the refugee kid who became a billionaire, you know. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> as, if, as if that just is, you know, that's the order, right? You know, um, but I do wonder how often you tap into your, and I, and you know, this program is about Iranian identity to a certain extent and the stories we tell each other, how often you do tap into your own background as an Iranian and that journey you took to come to, to the West uh, as an inspiration somehow for all that you do and are. So... I am not, and, and saying that to you on a podcast about Iranians, it's, it's, it's an awful thing probably to say, but I'm not very big about nationalism and your origin as an individual. I'm, I'm a huge believer that human beings are human beings and they all uh, have the same kind of desires and beliefs. And one of the things that going through the journey I went through, and I'm sure you identify with that, is that whether I was an insider or an outsider, whether I was young or I'm much older now, whether I had no money and I have uh, some now, it really didn't matter. What I found in that journey is whoever I was with, people, young, old, rich, poor, uh, insiders, outsiders, immigrants, natives, they all have the same desires, the same needs. We just have different opportunities. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the bit that really matters. Uh, believe me, a Chinese mother loved their children as much as an Iranian mother, as much as a Canadian mother, mm -hmm. uh, or father, right? So I, I think 
it wasn't so much about the fact that I came from Iran. It was more the fact that I came from a wonderful family who gave me a huge grounding. And that family could have existed in any country in the world. And it wasn't just the fact that I was an Iranian refugee. It was just the fact that I was a refugee. And a refugee could be from Somali, from Afghanistan, from anywhere else, right? Uh, and it wasn't the fact that I love humanity because I come from the East. Many of the fantastic friends I have from the West uh, have beautiful humanitarian values yes. to them. So... Does that make sense? It, it does. I mean, I'm tempted to say the Chinese mother who loves their kids doesn't make the same level of gay me as, uh, <laughs> as as the Persian mother. But but, but, they, but, but everything make else makes. Good. Yeah, but they make damn good like uh, the duck soup. <laughs> yeah, are you? I mean, if if given your prominence and the fact that people know that you're Iranian, are you courted by Iranian groups and political parties and these kind of things to get involved in the politics of Iran and to make statements, uh, or or do you are you are you able to stay away? No, from that? I I avoid politics in every country. I mean, I understand people have their. Uh, views and their beliefs and what I found is uh, is that there is an, a set of beliefs of views that is 100% right all the time every time uh, and I think that we spend far too much time and uh, you're living in Canada just next door to United States you can see it uh, next door to you in the US now um, uh, playing itself uh, to an extreme we spend far too much time finding the differences between each other and uh, and fighting over those differences well those are all just a matter of context so let's just depoliticize that from the context of iran if you take it to the context of united states for instance and you take a democrat uh, on the left of the democratic party and a uh, republican on the right of the yeah. party a yeah. supporter of trump and you take them both into a situation where they have to go to war. I don't know, take them back in the 70s when they would say if they were prisoners of war in Vietnam. It would have become irrelevant. There were two American prisoners right, of right. war in Vietnam fighting side by side or standing side by side. And the same is true about anything else. It's, it has so much to do with context. And I think we do much better as humanity if we find areas in which that we have in common. Having said that, there are crimes that humans commit that are just criminal or inhuman and are in unforgivable and nobody should stay quiet about those either. I've really in, enjoyed talking to you. A final question. I mean, uh, you, there's so much you've said in this uh, interview that, that I feel like I should find in a book uh, of, of inspiration. But, uh, but given your, what you've described as your ups and downs and this perspective that comes from that to be uh, um, you know, on the lists that you're on now and, and where you've been before that, uh, what would you say, and this is, I, I, I forgive me because I know it's not an, 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 a question that has any empirical answer, but, but what's, what comes to mind if I were to ask you, what's the greatest lesson you've learned about what makes a good life? Um, I, I think there are two, three things that give, make anything a good life. First is you have to have the basics right, right? The, the hygiene, you have to be healthy. You have to have enough money not to be starving, all of those things. Without any of those, it's very hard to have a good life, right? I mean, if you have a degenerating disease that is making it, giving you pain every single day, uh, it's very hard to say, look, I have happiness, right? Yeah. So, so you've got to get the, the, the basics, yeah. the hygiene factor, yes. right? Let's assume that. Outs yeah. uh, let's assume that. Outside that, I think it's all about 
Do you have something that inspires you every day? And are you surrounded by people that you love being around? Um, and, and I think if you get these two right, and both of those are things you could do something about. Uh, while in the first uh, instance, it's harder to do something about the hygiene if things are wrong, it's hard to fix it. But, but those things are, we all can find something that, that inspires us and we aspire towards. And we can all avoid the people who make us feel miserable, right? I mean, it goes back to one of the earlier questions you said, what about all the detractors? Well, learn from what they say, because often when somebody's detracting, they have something right that you mm. just are oblivion to. So you have to hear it out and try and fix it. But on the other hand, if they're negative people, just avoid them. Like, I mean, I mean, so I'm a big believer in avoiding negativity, yes. focusing on the positive and, f and, and keep going and not worrying too much if things go wrong uh, because you can fix them. And if you can't fix them, then, you know, you learn from them and then start again, if that makes sense. Dr. Ali Parsa, I thank you for the time. I thank you for the education and the inspiration. I've really enjoyed this. Thank you so much. And I thank you for your kindness in having me both on and in being such a wonderful questioner and listener. Thank you. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. Ali Parsa is a PhD in engineering physics, an entrepreneur and the founder and CEO of Babylon Health. We reached Ali Parsa in London, England today. All right, microphone's back on for Captain Reza, Groovy Shia, and the fabulous Keon. How about that Ali Parsa? Wow, 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 wow. It's like an interviewing Yoda, <laughs> right? He's like this it's wise incredible. person. He's a young guy, but he's uh, yeah. I felt like I was. Wow. Uh, he was imparting wisdom through right? that interview. Yeah, yeah, truly. But one thing that he said that um, it brought back a lot of interesting memories. Actually, when he was like, when the way he said goodbye to his dad, mm. and the guy. Oh, and memories him, for you. You yeah, had yeah, that yeah, similar yeah, experience. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I left Iran. Uh, 16 years ago, uh, I, I remember saying goodbye to my father. Well, I, I hugged him and everything. Oh, yeah. But as soon as he said it, and that uh, he was like, he, we weren't allowed to hug, and it just like the most you can do, like shake his hands. And I was thinking back, I'm like, and I had my ups and downs with my family and stuff, but I was like, wow, imagine like if I only, I could only shake my hat, my dad's yeah. hand and not hug him for the last time. Yeah. It was it was interesting though, it was interesting. What an interview. It's very what cinematic, that story. <laughs> you see it, you know, you see it at the mm -hmm. border. Mm -hmm. There's people watching, you can't hug. I mean, the whole thing is- uh, It's like a movie, so it's yeah, like a movie of his. Yeah. It's what cinematic means, but yes. uh, yeah. yeah. That's what it means, right? <laughs> yeah, I should know, I should, I should have known it's that. It's very cinematic. <laughs> also, it's like a movie. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Reza. Yeah. Uh, Shia, did you have a reaction to listening as we were doing that interview? Yeah, actually I loved uh, that part that he said that when uh, he, uh, for example, when he wants to interview somebody, he looks uh, on the path that yeah. somebody yeah. passed. Uh, Don't look at their current achievements. Look at their story. The story. Their, their, yeah. pa you yeah. know, their past. Exactly. Yeah. That's really yeah. amazing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just going to say that, that that part really stood out for me. You know, um, like someone that's achieved a bunch of things, sure, that's impressive, but 
what about the person that's had to immigrate his whole family and escape a war and you know those life experiences that really builds yeah. character mm-hmm. how would you be able to like pull that out of someone in a job interview and you know in the past like interviews that I've done like you you rarely talk about these things so I so I don't know it, it's like That's true. I, I've never, never I've, I don't think I've ever heard of someone that has this type of interview style from yeah. my experience anyway so well that I mean the story can be um, it's where you travel from. It's mm-hmm. what you've done in, in other jobs. What you, right. you've been. It, he's saying just it's not just about the the current achievements, right. like where you're, how successful you are it's in this moment. It's about what you, where life. you've been, and what you've done in your yeah, life. Yeah, your life so experience. You, have you never been asked those questions in an not interview? Not really. It's really it yearly. It's it's uh, purely based on. Um, professional experiences from Mm. what I've experienced at least like just focused on that and rarely focused on you know your personal life like things you've had to endure and usually like uh, I found that I've had to stay away from those things like you Mm. know don't bring up those personal issues and things that you've had in your life I guess some people may not in, in some cases you you may not have to volunteer that information. It's pe- true. You, people would know. You so, know and he's directly asking uh, them. So he, yeah. he but, actually. But I think you know there are sort of um, uh, omnibus or g- general questions that are asked in interviews. No, like mm-hmm. something like uh, you know what has been one of the great challenges in your life. You know, you you ask sure. those questions to find out about somebody, and they say, oh, well, when both my parents died. Oh, really? You know. I yeah, mean, but uh, it also does depend on um, you know how much experience and your educational success like whereas I don't he at least he made it sound like he's more focused on someone's life like what they've endured mm-hmm. and what they've mm-hmm. done yeah because um, even when you get asked like what are the biggest challenges you faced in your life you always like try to think of it professionally that's right like what were the biggest challenges of my previous work or yeah. my previous like which is a shame because you miss out on all these other incredible human Absolutely. beings that have so much to offer and you wouldn't have been mm-hmm. able to find them yeah. but I don't think he I can't no we just did the interview but I can't remember was it was it I don't think he was just talking about it in a job interview. He was saying in no, general. In general. In general. Yeah. You get a sense of people based on their story. Right. You know, but you w- he fi- was talking about people that he would hire for his own company. I th- mm-hmm. at, at least that's yeah. what I heard. But that might not mean that he, o- he only knows them through a five-minute interview. I mean, it might be. True. You know, there might be other Very ways true. to. For example, he said Jeff Bezos. You see that guy; he grew up in a mm-hmm. you know wealthy That's community. Right. That's but right. Yeah, but uh, like uh, compared to Ali, mm-hmm. that he was a refugee That's and right. he yeah. passed a very long path yeah. to reach. To see that point. that impresses me more than someone like Jeff Bezos, someone that's had to endure so much and go through so many struggles just to reach that like high peak of life. And I was, you know, you know I also think this is. Uh, I, I'm always careful not to you know victimize us in, in too much but I, I also think there's something about the fact that Iranians in general have been through so much yeah. that even when we're critical with inside the community of you know an Instagram influencer and you go oh what is this person mm-hmm. you know yeah. what good is this person she's just putting hot pictures up and what yeah. do they really do and then you go then you scratch me the surface and you find out this person you know had to escape Iran and and with no money and you know basically started that race you know 10 yards behind everybody right. else and suddenly there's a different context for the fact that they've worked their way up to becoming this super successful influencer you know or, or right. whatever it might be yeah. and I think that's part of what he was getting out there too that's I think he, he was also suggesting I think because he, he said a couple of times about his own 
bankruptcies and things that 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 you know part of the story of someone is is they're rising and falling you see mm-hmm. somebody who you kind of want someone who's had that that history that mm-hmm. hasn't had some sort of medium level you know increase in their you know trajectory but somebody who's had ups and downs is mm-hmm. you might think has learned more about the world in one way or another you know know. he really surprised me i'll say that much i i was not you know i had some expectation you know you you hear billionaire you think oh of course he's going to be very confident very arrogant very but he from what i gather he sounds really kind Mm. and um humble and just so he's different from most of the billionaires you date Uh, All right, letters uh, of the week. Let's <laughs> you know, I'm not picking on Keon. This is uh, she's made her choices very clear. <laughs> this is what she's interested. Well, I've, I've stated nothing of the sort. <laughs> I love how Gian picks on Keon and then he s- states that at the end so that he doesn't get disclaimer. That. Yeah, <laughs> that, that, that little yeah. disclaimer. No, no, no. My my mom and my sister they were like, no, it's uh, it's Reza. Keon and you, you, you guys have your banter back and forth. She puts you in your place, but this why do you. Why are you so oh. difficult and poor little Reza? Reza? You know. the last person oh. you should feel bad. I love your mom now. Reza, I've never met a more confident guy. You know? <laughs> yeah, really. He wears sunglasses around. on yeah. his head in public. Sunglasses on his head. At night. Nighttime <laughs> events. Yeah. <laughs> hey, a big thank you again to Kathy Kavandi and Kathy Kavandi Immigration Services, Inc. for making this edition of Rook possible. Uh, this is a full-service immigration firm that offers all inland and overseas immigration services, including temporary visas, permanent visas, PR extensions, citizenship applications. Katzi and her team are available to inform and assist you as their client throughout the whole immigration process. If you want to come to Canada, if you're listening from somewhere else in the world and you want to come to Canada, or if you are here and need support, you need an immigration counselor, and Katzi is your person. Katzi Kavandi Immigration Services. Uh, go to her Instagram page at Katzi Kavandi or Kavandi dot ca and also a shout out to ed dolat abadi and toronto real estate market dot ca ed dolat abadi for helping to make this edition of rook possible whether you're looking to buy or sell ed can get your home sold or find you the home you've been dreaming of either way his goal is to make your experience comfortable guided fast efficient ed is a real estate broker and agent who works at uh, royal lepage signature brokerage and is one of the top in his field but also puts a real emphasis on caring about the community and giving back to the Persian community as well as the broader community. He's also, Keon, an avid horseback rider. He's been breeding, training, and coaching uh, folks with horses for years. It's actually on my list of things to learn. Oh, for some reason I thought, I thought you, you were. Did, a, yeah. I, yeah. I've done it. Did you think it. that too? I totally thought it fits your brand <laughs> yeah. for you to be a. I've done know, it. Like no, Saturday's you, horseback riding, yeah. Sunday's polo. Tennis. Yeah. polo. <laughs> you know, I just uh, checked off scuba diving off my list of life things to do. No, but we've seen you pictures of you on horses. Is yeah. that not? Yeah, I've horseback. Okay, but I'm not like an avid. Uh-huh. You know, I don't uh, go on the weekends. You don't compete. No, yeah. I don't do horse jumping. Yeah, you look like you would though. You totally look like you would. What is this generalization? Of I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it's really not fair that we've done that to you. <laughs> yeah. Totally. I mean, I can't imagine a, a horse warming to Reza. You know? 
<laughs> Actually, I did. Ho- I I rode horses when I was uh, when I was thirteen. In Shiraz? Do you no, mean donkeys? Yeah, yeah, outside of Shiraz, <laughs> we showed the horses. As well. <laughs> my dad, my grandfather had a farm, and he had a bunch Aww, of horses and donkeys and stuff. Beautiful. So I rode all of them. Yeah. What know, about Uncle Bob? Did he have horses? <laughs> no, no, Uncle Bob. Say, so it's a, a Reza it last show. I don't know if you heard this. No. Did you listen to like got to listen to the last show? Bob Ackman. Yeah, yeah, yeah Uncle Bob Ackman. Yeah, yeah, the Bob Ackman. And, and I thought like Bob Ackman is like Barry or something like that. He goes by Bob. Yeah, you Bobby. Know, Uncle Bob. Uncle Bobby. Uh, he's probably as Persian or more than Reza, right? He has got like a thick accent. <laughs> and like, oh, he's got such Hi, a I'm thick I'm looking accent. for Bob in Calgary. Yeah, and he'd be like, hello. Yeah. What is this? You mean, who is this? <laughs> who do you want to speak speak with? Uh, is that Uncle Bob? I thought... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yes, Digger. This is yes, Uncle Bob. Yes, what you I want? Uh, all right. Uh, thank you uh, to uh, to everybody for your comments. Uh, thanks again to uh, Dr. Ali Parsa. What a pleasure it was to have him on the show. Let's get to letters of the week. Um, yeah. By himself, <laughs> a man alone, as he should be. Yeah. <laughs> but I persevered. <laughs> Did you though? All right. So last week on episode 131, we had Iranian American plastic surgeon and entrepreneur Dr. Sheila Nazarian, who was also recently nominated for her uh, Netflix series called Skin Decision: Before and After. Right, an Emmy nomination. Yeah. Mm quite impressive so first off we have another doctor uh, who wrote to us uh, Dr. Amir Rouzati says another interesting interview in a style that's unique to Jean Romeshi it was really interesting for me to listen to this detailed interview from my perspective as a cosmetic physician yes Hmm. Dr. Rouzati is uh, I was actually curious to think to see what other doctors in the field think of Dr. Nazarian that's uh, that's interesting interesting and then we have Fatty Nam Varad. She wrote to us saying, Great voice and great job, Jian Aziz. I know the Nazarian family. If they are the same ones I know, Dr. Nazarian was a great doctor in Kermanshah back before the revolution. He assisted my mom in giving birth to me in the hospital. They're a great family and they're a great and wonderful family. Nice. Wow, wow that's interesting. Incredible. All right, and then we have Mark's username, Marks of Excellence, wrote second generation. I think this is Mark of Excellence. Is it Mark of Excellence? Mm-hmm. Oh, Mark. I think he's written to us before as well. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. That's right. never gets it right. I never get it right. Because yeah, it's all jambled together. So. Marks of Excellence. Marks of Excellence. <laughs> Mark, it's, it's like Mark of Excellence. <laughs> all right. Mark of Excellence wrote awesome. to us oh, saying, yeah. second generation Iranians are quite fascinating. Just take this episode as an example. Mm. Very yeah. true. And then we have North Targaryen wrote, as amazing as always, in-depth and quality interviews. The name Rook suits this program very well. Oh, that's yeah. not the letter of the week, yeah. huh? Yeah. It's a nomination for me. I know, I know. This be There's a, a lot to choose from this okay. week, actually. All right. Also, uh, what was it? Two weeks ago, we on episode 128, we had award-winning Iranian-British broadcaster, fashion designer, artist, and producer Behzad Bulur on the show. Mm-hmm. So we have a Mehdad Sadari wrote to us saying, The thing that I observed so many times in this interview was the impatience of Behzad during the questioning. <laughs> in brackets, he has, I love this guy, though. By not letting Jian finish his word. 
However, Gian professionally conducted the interview without blaming why he didn't let him finish his question. It reminded me of the interview you did with Billy Bob Thornton oh. and why people were saying at that time, this classic interview should be used as a textbook training for college students in radio broadcasting courses. Not only on how to keep your cool during an interview, but how to treat your guests smoothly. I don't want to compare this interview with that one, but I only wanted to say, Gian is a very strong interviewer for every situation. Well done, Gian. Wow. That's really, I, I need yeah. this Merdad, uh, <laughs> <laughs> I need Merdad Sadri around me uh, yeah. <laughs> during the day, giving me, uh, yeah, that's, a, that's a really nicely said. I, I didn't find uh, Bessabur, for sure, he's um, very enthusiastic, likes to uh, jump in, mm -hmm. yeah, that's his personality, <laughs> uh, and so it, it was okay, I didn't mind that, that he did that, he, it was it was a bit of jousting there to, to get some uh, word in, but uh, I really enjoyed uh, speaking to Bessab Boulur. Thank you for that letter though, Maritad, appreciate it. All right, then we have Sam Musavi wrote to us saying, great episode, Iranians are more honest in English interviews, no makeup. That's interesting. That's Is interesting. It true? We found that over and over again, haven't we? Right. Uh, that uh, that folks who when I'm doing the research, they when they come and do a, an interview in English, they're a lot more candid. Yeah. Why is sometimes. that? Yeah. I think it's a number of reasons. One, they feel more inoculated from from getting in trouble by mm. speaking on this show rather than doing a Farsi uh, network program. But I think the other thing is when your vocab is a little bit more limited, mm. you can't um, speak in sort of nuanced and mm. in somewhat evasive, poetic yeah. ways. You know, you mm. got to get straight to the that's matter. That's true. It's like so my Persian speaking. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So uh, I think that's part of it. Wow. Yeah. All right. Then we have Abuzar Binesh wrote, combination of Rook and Behzad is great. Thank you, Gian. Nice. And then Arash Moini wrote, Durud! Since 20 years ago, I have been Behzad's fan of Shabbat Shishom and Shabbat Haftom on BBC Farsi Radio. I was so looking forward to this interview. Many thanks and well done, Rook team. Thanks, Arash. Nice. Very nice. And then username PD2021 wrote, The expressive power of both of you is excellent. Even if you're not familiar with English, you will understand this. Congratulations. And then Mohammad Gorgi wrote, I've been looking for a good English podcast for my little brother in order to improve his listening skills. Thank you for Rook. It's full of what I was searching for. And also thank you for your sexy voice and accent. Oh, oh my accent. Accent. It's about me. Absolutely. Alright, and then we have Puria Afshin wrote. Maybe it's my, my American Canadian accent. Maybe, maybe that maybe I'm not speaking with a yeah, that's that right. I don't have a Persian accent means I have an accent. <laughs> yeah, I guess to, from yeah. our perspective, you don't have an accent. I don't but talk to like this, the ting. Yeah. <laughs> don't think that you know me. <laughs> <laughs> Can we inter interview her at some point? Yeah, I think it's necessary. Yeah. <laughs> All right, and then we have Puria Afshin wrote. I can hear Behzad's passion for the love of art, history, and culture. He seems in great shape. I'm sure, or I hope, he lives more than 85 years. That was a reference in the interview. He said, I think I'm going to be dead by 85. Or he's yeah. going to pretend to be yeah, dead and then right, live. That's right. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and then Tanoz Asifi wrote, Thank you for this, Gian John. Inspiring interview. I really admire Behzad's passion for Farsi and everything Iranian. Nice, Tanos. Thank you. Yeah. 
All right, letter of the week time. So this week's letter of the week goes out to um, a Setara Mahdavi. She wrote to us about the Kayvon Zand episode, and he's the queer um, artist, uh, musician. Um, Yeah, so she writes saying, in every podcast, you open a window to my mind and turn on new lights. I believe it's time to understand each other and to have non-judgmental behavior. And this podcast just hits it on the nail. Jianjian, the attention you pay to the details of your guests is remarkable. You're a smart interviewer. Thanks, Rook team. You do an amazing job. Wow, that's beautiful. beautiful. She lost me a bit with the thanks, Rook team. <laughs> it was nice with the up until that part. She wants all the praise. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> thanks, Rook team, except for Reza would have except made for sense. Reza, imagine. <laughs> the problem exclude. is when they say thanks, Rook team, it includes Reza. How yeah. do we? That's, yeah. that's. If everyone's thrown in there. I mean, you hope producer Susan would be <laughs> yeah. thanked, Pot of the Artist, Super, Super P. P. Repeat, Roham, Savvy Roham. Savvy Roham. Yeah. Literally everybody, everybody except for Reza. No. <laughs> no. Man, why, do you, why are you so hard on Reza? He's so nice. He's good. He's uh, a nice boy. Mother, you have no idea what you're speaking of. Oh. This person is a monster. Is I'm going to send Gian Do you know what he would have done to Elizabeth Taylor? He would have terrorized her. He would have terrorized her when they were dating. He would have. Stolen from her. He's a, he oh he would have made her wear sh- shades on her head. <laughs> oh. Okay. Well, thank you to Setare Madhavi, Ma- Mahdavi, Mahdavi uh, for that beautiful letter. That's so much appreciated. Thank you to everybody. Thank you, especially to Captain Reza for enduring some fun ribbing. See, people don't get they don't get to this part of the podcast no. where I say I love you. you might, <laughs> yeah. They just hear the beginning. You know, and they don't know about the shades on his head. They, they don't know what all. We need to post a picture oh. the, so they yeah. believe us. Hey, it's I uh, owe Gian's mom a bouquet of flowers. I'm gonna send it to her. Pardon me. Show. What? Kian's mom? No, she. Oh. Gian's mom. Oh, Kian's mom. Like, what you said Gian's was mom? cinematic. Yeah, be good at <laughs> movies too. <laughs> Thank you, Reza. Yeah. <laughs> all right. Oh. Enough hijinks. See you on Thursday. This is full time for Rook for today. Our website, rookmedia.com, is the place where you can find everything and all things Rook, including our episodes, our guests, our Rook moments, our Rook funnies. Rookmedia.com, where you can become a patron of this show and support us for 5 or $10 a month. Press the red button that says support us. Producer Susan Ponta, the artist, Thoughtful Nagin, the fabulous Keon, Super Parisot. Savvy Roham, Ahoy Merdad, Sponsorship Sean, Captain Reza, and Groovy Shaya. Thank you guys for putting this show together. Thank you to all of you out there for supporting us and sharing our content. Please subscribe if you haven't done so already. You can do that for free on any of our platforms. And you can find me on Instagram, Facebook, everywhere, Gian Gomeshi. In the meantime, Mizun Bashi. Mizun Bashi.